In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Jeffrey Hales, the chair of the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, or SASB. Jeffrey is also a professor of accounting at the University of Texas at Austin. In this episode, Jeffrey will walk us through the past, present, and future of the SASB standards. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. So this beat is going to focus on accounting standards for environmental, social, and governance topics. And with strong support from the investment community, uh, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, or SASB, is emerging as a leading standard for issuers. Before we get into the present moment, let's delve into SASB's history. So Jeff, can you walk us through when SASB was formed and why, and touch upon how your um, founding principles were different from other standard setters? Sure. Yeah, happy to, to do that. So really, the, the ideas for SASB emerged out of a, a paper that was written in 2010 by our founder, Jean Rogers, with uh, a couple of colleagues that she had at Harvard. And, uh, uh, and basically, the idea of the paper was... If you looked at the current reporting landscape uh, at that time, there was great reporting um, and disclosure for the traditional financial accounting issues that we think of, um, you know, in terms of assets and liabilities, you know, tracking revenues and expenses, the things that companies have right now and the things that they, the, the liabilities that they owe right now. But there was also a recognition that just beyond the existing assets and liabilities of today are the risks and opportunities of tomorrow. And many of those uh, types of risks and opportunities relate to um, issues outside of the, the immediate control uh, of or complete control of the company and, and wouldn't qualify, you know, and, and I think shouldn't qualify as, uh, you know, something to be recorded on the balance sheet, for example, yet. Um, but that doesn't mean that that information isn't incredibly important to the market for allocating capital to the companies that are best managing those risks and opportunities. And, and it also, you know, is not to say that that it isn't super important for companies to be managing those issues themselves in order to ensure the, the long-term um, value creation of their of their company. And so, uh, so they wrote this paper, and the paper uh, recognized that. That if you were going to think about these issues and try to deliver good, important information to the capital markets, there were going to be a couple of key aspects to that. One is that it needed to reflect the business strategy and the business issues that companies face that were most important to them. Uh, and that meant that it was probably going to need to be industry specific and that it needed to be comparable for for investors to be able to make peer comparisons. And so that meant that it was also going to have to be fairly clear in terms of what was being disclosed, how it was being measured, and, and of a nature that could then be benchmarked against a peer company so that an investor could decide how and, and in what way to, to allocate the capital between those companies. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear that an academic paper um, was the seed that uh, started all of this. Uh, as an academic, that makes me extremely happy. And I just wanted to emphasize when SASB was developing the standards, who was the target audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, one of the things that distinguished SASB's work and effort, and I think the reason why uh, our founder, Gene Rogers, was able to, to really sort of push this forward and gain some momentum around it is that 
it was clearly addressing a market need. And by the market, I mean the capital markets, providers of capital to companies. So the, the mainstream investors uh, and lenders to, to companies and trying to address their needs. Because really for, for 10 years, at least, I think, preceding this, um, you know, more like 15 or 20, there had been growing efforts to, to improve disclosure from companies to a, to a wider stakeholder audience. And so GRI would be one of the, the big initiatives that had helped to move that broader stakeholder reporting forward. And, um, and while that has been you know, very helpful for, for helping companies to better communicate with their um, their suppliers, their their customers, their their employees, local communities, um, and other types of NGOs and interest groups. It 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 didn't necessarily meet the needs of of the mainstream capital markets because they process information in a different way and and needed a different focus um, in terms of what specifically were the key issues that they needed. So needed to be focused on the biggest, most important issues to the company and presented in a way that was comparable for other companies. So before we get into the very detailed and stakeholder intensive process that SASB pursued to develop the standards, I wanted to give our audience a sense of SASB's governance. What is SASB's governance structure and where do you as chair of the board fit into that? And if you can opine on the logic behind that structure and whether it mirrors other standard boards. Yeah, so, so SASB is governed by, um, really I think of it as like two boards. Uh, we have a foundation board and, and then we have a standards board. And the foundation board is responsible for the, the mission of the organization. They set our North Star and they are responsible for the, you know, the, the, the fun job of fundraising, <laughs> so <laughs> making sure that we have the the, the resources that, that are necessary to actually conduct the activities that, that we need to, to do to, to actually achieve the, the mission of the, the organization. Um, and so part of their oversight was to create a standards board, and the standards board is uh, really the, the technical body that decides on what will be in the standards. And it's, was very important for SASB to have a, a governance role, but then an independent standards board so that, you know, this is, you know, like we, we are not a think tank that is out there pitching an idea that we want to profit from. We are, um, or like a consulting firm that's trying to do that. Um, you know, and we're not even a think tank that's just trying to come up with the best idea that we can come up with. The idea is that we are trying to be a, uh, an organization that, that follows transparency, uh, due process in our activities, and in a way that is independent from the, the needs to consider you know, concerns around fundraising or product development or, 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 or even really market adoption. I mean, we, we, we take what companies are willing to do in terms of use our standards as an indication of, of what's in the standards, but ultimately we have to decide what we think is the you know, most important for the, the investors to be learning about when it comes to companies. And so that does mirror what we saw as best practices in, in the, you know, basically every other major accounting standard that there is out there or that there has been in recent history. The, the two biggest ones being here in the U.S., the Financial Accounting Standards Board and internationally, 
the International Accounting Standards Board, both of which are independent standards boards that are overseen by foundations, the Financial Accounting Foundation in, here in the US and the uh, IFRS Foundation uh, for the IASB. So we, we tried to follow the, the best practice there and, and, and not you know, deviate from what seems to have worked well and I think what the market demands for, for good standard setting. Okay, thank you for clarifying that dual board structure. Uh, can you speak a little bit about your role? Yeah, so my, my role as, uh, is on the standards board and I, and I chair the standards board. So our standards board has nine members and um, uh, you know, unlike the FASB or the ISB, we don't have the, the capacity right now to be a full-time board. So we all have other things that uh, you know, you, you occupy our time. Uh, and I'm a, a faculty member at the University of Texas, which is, you know, the, my main job, my day job. Um, but but we, we, you know, dedicate a lot of our free time to, to working on, on the issues around the SASB. And so as chair, I help to oversee the, the activities of the board. Uh, and so that includes the, the planning of the um, the board's activities, the agenda setting for what we'll be working on in terms of standard setting activities and as well as, you know, run the meetings. But, um, you know, all of the major decisions of the board, you know, essentially are decided by um, a majority vote of the board. Okay, so with that background, um, I'd like to delve into SASB's process for developing the standards, which is something that is uh, very opaque uh, for a lot of people. So I want to make it as transparent um, as possible. So I'm gonna to try to break it up into specific building blocks. Now, as I understand it, SASB's process for developing the standards is similar to the process for creating accounting standards. And you're an accountant and teach accounting. What specifically does SASB mean by that? I think of this as really being about using an independent standards board and that independent standards board following uh, two key guiding principles, one of transparency and one of due process. So the idea there then is that whatever we end up deciding for the standards at the board level is going to be decided by a majority vote of the board and will have been preceded by public deliberations of what we were thinking, as well as um, you know, opportunities for the public to comment on on those um, uh, proposals. And there is, you know, a bit of the nuance here is that, um, you know, we, we created our, our, our standards, 77 industry standards, and, uh, and so there's a process for also maintaining them as well. So we, we can certainly talk about that. Um, but basically, our research team's efforts are overseen by an independent board and our deliberations of the content of the standards are done in public meetings. Um, that's often what we mean by that now is that um, if we're in a place where the public can attend, we, we, if we have the capacity for that, people can attend our meetings in person. Um, we don't always have that luxury, uh, especially in the current times and situations, uh, but we do try to uh, also video archive the, the meetings and at a minimum, uh, audio cast them. So um, that's what we think of as, as developing standards in that way, like accounting standards. So I understand that the process to develop the original standards, which cover 77 industries, took six years and it was um, highly consultative. Can you walk us through that history and what that process looked like? Yeah, uh, so originally when we were developing the, the standards, the, um, 
the way that we did that was to basically go one sector at a time. So although we have 77 industries uh, uh, for uh, that we that we have standards for, we you could bucket those into 11 uh, sectors that are you know, where the the industries are more closely related. And we uh, worked on developing the industry standards basically one sector at a time. So uh, the first sector that we completed was uh, healthcare. The second was financials, and, and then we went on from there. I think one of the last was was infrastructure, I believe. At the time that we uh, that SASB began that process, we actually did not have a standards board uh, at that time. So I I chaired the standards council uh, at the that oversaw the due process that was being used by the by the team to develop the provisional standards, but. We actually didn't have a standards board that wasn't formed until 2017. And in 2017, we formed the the standards board, and uh, I was uh, one of the original members of that standards board, and was the the vice chair to our uh, our founder, who took the chair role. And at that time, we set forth a, an agenda to then take all of what we had been learning since the development of our provisional standards, all, all the research and deep engagement that we were doing with companies and investors. Uh, we took that as an opportunity to then propose, propose a set of um, revisions uh, to the standards. And this was then approved by the board. And, uh, and then we had a, a process of developing those proposed changes to the standards and putting those proposed changes out for public comment, responding to the comments that we received, and then uh, and then voting to approve the standards. And so it was really, uh, you know, if people may have heard of like when SASB codified the standards or launched our standards. You know, I think of that as in 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 2018, in November of 2018. That's the end point at which we we said, okay, now a board, an independent board has approved the standards, all 77 of them, and uh, it did so where there was a period of, of due process that we went through to also look at that and, and propose some uh, changes to the standards and put those changes out for public comment and to respond to that. And so uh, that's really what we mean by the codification of, of the standards and how we kind of went from that start to um, uh, to the to the launch of the standards in 2018. Okay, that's very helpful. So the standards were effectively codified or launched, and and your work is done, right? The standards are complete. You never need to revisit them. That's right. It, well, they, it will be as soon as the world and business stop evolving, then we our work will be done. <laughs> How often are the standards updated, and and what does a process for that look like? I mean, do you just you know set a timer and in two years you look at the standards again or is it event driven yeah i would say it's um it's event slash issue driven um so the way i would think about this is that uh as a standard setting organization we we have a responsibility if we're going to put standards out there for 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 entities to use and for investors to rely on then we have a responsibility to stay informed on what's going on in the world in certain industries. What are the issues that matter, and uh, and and they will evolve. And 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 of course, you know, not only will will the world change around us, but uh, but even if it didn't, as more and more companies and more and more investors use the information that's being produced from from following the standards. Um, you know, we, we will learn more about the the usefulness of that. And so if there are opportunities to, uh, you know, improve the cost effectiveness of the standard, if there are, if there are opportunities to, um, to, to address issues that, that are important that haven't, yeah, weren't captured in our initial development of the standards, then we want to make sure that we're, we're 
actually responding to that. So we have a responsibility to stay informed and then to use that monitoring and, and that information to look for opportunities to improve the, the standards and their ability to actually achieve the mission of SASB, which is to you know, facilitate a, a communication between companies and capital providers around environmental, social, and, and issues and the governance over those issues. What that effectively means is that you know, we have a research team that is constantly engaging with investors and companies and in, in both a directed fashion where we see something pop up in the news or in corporate reports or from, from a call, and, and that will stimulate more research, which will then prompt us to go out and to consult more, which will then prompt us to think and, and do more research. And, uh, and eventually, you know, the, the, the research team will come to the standards board and say, hey, we think this is a good opportunity for, um, for potentially improving the standards. And if the board agrees, we'll add that to our agenda. But we really uh, target those things in a, in, a, in a project by project basis. And, you know, some of them can be really low hanging fruit to make a simple improvement to the standard um, and could be done relatively quickly, uh, still with due process to the extent that we're making substantive changes to the standards. Um, and, and others are big ambitious activities. And, and sometimes they're so big and ambitious that we, you know, we really start by, by just trying to do publicly um, be more transparent about the research that we're doing to better understand certain issues. Yeah, I've been really impressed with um, those research initiatives and really with the level of engagement that you have with a multitude of stakeholders from academia to investor groups. As I understand it, there are 10 research initiatives uh, ongoing right now with respect to um, potentially updating some of the standards. Um, so I'd like to uh, pivot to investor support for the standards. Uh, you recently got a present, a surprise from Larry Fink this year, um, asking issuers in his annual letter to CEOs to use the TCFD framework and the SASB standards uh, in uh, their disclosure to investors. Um, now BlackRock's announcement has gotten a lot of attention, but I'd like our audience to appreciate um, just how broad SASB's support is among investors. Yeah, so we have, um, one, one way to think about the support for, from investors is that it's not just BlackRock, you know, but that, um, so we have, for example, our investor advisory group. And the investor advisory group is comprised of asset managers and asset owners and uh, from all around the world. So, so I believe the, the current number is something like around 50 or 51 uh, asset managers and asset, or asset owners. And uh, they have, I believe, a combined total of just over 40 trillion in assets under management. Um, and they're not just uh, U.S. companies, and they're not just non-U.S. companies, but they're from all around the world. Uh, 12 countries represented. Um, about a third of the, these being asset owners or, or managers that are based outside of the U.S. So um, that's one very public um, show of, of investor support. Um, and then another way is to is to think about uh, uh, you know really those who license. So one thing that's really important to understand is that when we put our standards out there for companies to use, they are free for companies to download and free for companies to use, and they can uh, and we encourage them to say they are reporting against SASB standards, so people know what to expect and and can can track that more easily. And that's that's free. 
and it's free for any investor to to use as well. But to the extent that there are companies out there that want to brand products around the SASB, you know, um, intellectual property, then that's where we sort of see an opportunity then for for that to um, uh, for their they're profiting from Tasby's work to sort of support the work that we do. So we do have licenses that companies will purchase and as they develop products like, you know, you can, if you want to invest with through the lens of SASB and you want us to do it for you and pay us to do that for you, you know, you can do SASB and what we use sort of SASB inside of our products. And so, um, so that's another showing of investor support where they're not just saying, you know, we want companies to report, but they're actually saying, you know, we're willing to to pay for the right to use that because we believe that we can make better financial products as a result of incorporating and marketing around, you know, the, what SASB's approach is. And uh, so that's, but, but companies, you know, companies are not now, nor will they ever be required to pay to use the SASB standards to disclose. Sure. And that makes sense. Thank you for that background. And that's really helpful because one thing that I've heard is that it is expensive to report and disclose, particularly for smaller companies. Um, And, you know, as the saying goes, what gets measured gets measured (laughs) and measuring is costly. Um, But it's very important to recognize not only the investor support in words, but the uh, investor support with respect to uh, these products and these licenses. So that's very compelling evidence of investor uh, support for the SASB standards. I'd like to move now to implementing the standards. So, you know, imagine that I'm a company that is really starting from scratch with respect to uh, disclosure and I want to build some rigor uh, around my reporting and disclosure. What is the first step that I should take? I always think the first step is download the standard. So just go, go to SASB's website. Look at you know, look for your industry, download the standard, and and take a look at it. You know, and it's they they are not that long, probably 20, 20 pages or so. Many of them, a bit of a an industry description, but then they uh, dive right into what the issues are. So most industry standards have you know, five to seven topics that are identified, uh, and they're usually around environmental issues, social issues, which are more like outwardly facing ones, uh, you know, customer. Uh, welfare, you know, the representation of uh, of a company and the communities in which it operates, or or human capital being more inward facing, uh, thinking about the employees of the company, for example. Um, but there are five to seven of the topics across those types of categories, and uh, and then for each of those topics that are identified, there are usually around. 10 to 13 or so metrics that would support performance reporting around those topics. So look at the the, the table in the, the standard and see whether or not these issues seem like they are the issues that 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 resonate for, for what matters to your business. And that's a great starting point. The second starting point is talk to your your investors and understand you know, what is it that they are looking for? What are the, you know, what are your investors 
keen to understand more about in your company when it comes to these issues. And then I would say you could look to you know, SASB's website. We have a, a lot of resources that are available. I would point to two key points on the website. One would be our knowledge hub. So in the knowledge hub, we have a lot of uh, freely accessible information that includes case studies of companies reporting, case studies of how investors of different types and different asset classes use uh, the standards. A great one that came out last year, State Street and their R factor and how that uh, is is using SASB's framework to to sort of hone in on the the key issues for companies and and creating a score which which State Street thinks will be as important as companies' credit ratings going forward. But um, uh, and their CEO wrote that in their letter this year. But but there's a great abundance of resources there that that I would encourage companies to uh, to look at in, the, in our knowledge hub. And then also I'd look at our our implementation primer. So the the primer is an interactive spot on our website where you can go and and dive into what we think of as sort of like best practices and a lot of you know, frequently asked questions and answers around implementation as we've been working with companies and listening to them as they've gone through this process. Uh, you know, we've tried to to take what we've heard from them and and help companies that are are starting out to to move from where they are to somewhere further down the road to where they want to be. So I'd like to turn to the future. And SASB's come a very long way in the past few years. Where do you see it heading? And particularly with respect to mandatory disclosure by the SEC, do you think that that is uh, likely in the near future? The U.S. has historically just approached you know, the, the role of regulation in capital markets differently than I, I think other other regions around the world um, <laughs> have done. So, you know, some countries are, are very much in sort of like push companies forward, and, and the companies seem seem like to to understand that and accept that that's a, that's the way that they get things done. In the U.S., we've not done that as much, and so um, I think that if absent a change in the in the current political regime in the U.S., I think you know, depending on the outcome of the election, I think depending, you know, I think you're probably going to see a change in the SEC regardless. That's often the case is after an election. You know, certainly if there's a change in party, but even if there's not, you often see a bit of rollover at the SEC um, at the commission. So I would expect to see some of that and the implications for change from the SEC are, are larger, of course, if there's a political party change. But even then, I, you know, I think that there are, you know, it, it's unlikely that, that the SEC would suddenly become like uh, the, the EU, for example, and, and really try to like push things forward. But that said, I think that, you know, it is clear that around the world, there is a growing uh, set of regulation and regulatory mandates that are requiring uh, improved disclosure and assurance around those disclosures and incorporating them into mainstream reports and uh, and and that it that is not something that even u s companies can say like well that just just doesn't matter to me because many companies have operations uh, that are you know sometimes significant operations around the world and so they may be subject to some of those same reporting requirements they may be doing business with suppliers or customers around the world that also will have some concerns and the need to cap capture certain types of information so I don't think this is something that that companies um, could say well it just doesn't matter for us because the SEC isn't going to mandate it you know your investors may may ask for it 
And, uh, and even if they don't, you may be required to do that uh, because of your operations outside the U.S. as well. So it's certainly something to, I think, be on the, to, you know, not be surprised by. So certainly stay informed and, uh, and really, I think, try to be a leader around this because we, I think that's, that's been something that we've seen investors really um, rally behind and, uh, and, and customers as well. So I think there's a lot of benefit to it if companies can get out there and really try to, to move forward as opposed to wait, wait and see. Thank you so much for that. And I suppose that uh, we can expect to see a lot more disclosure given um, all of the investor enthusiasm and in particular Larry Fink's um, very specific request uh, to use the SASB standards uh, in this disclosure cycle. I think so. Uh, you know, I think certainly with, um, you know, the, the, the current pandemic, um, the, the, that is, that has drawn a lot of necessary attention and resources to to very pressing short-term uh, concerns that have to be have to be managed. And so there's just um, you know, I, I can't think of almost a single thing that hasn't been somewhat slowed or delayed these days because of of our, of our current situation or, you know around the world. And so um, I've heard from a lot of companies that they've been asking about you know like well if if you know BlackRock asked for disclosure in 2020. Um, like what if we can't get there because of the current situation? I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of understanding that that you know you're in the situation that you're in, and you gotta you gotta manage that as best you can. Um, but but they also view these as pressing issues, and and even if you look at what they were what Larry you know, said in his letter, what BlackRock followed up with, they were looking for progress more than anything else. And I think that's um, broadly reflective of what the market is looking for is is progress and understanding how companies are, are going to be improving their disclosure around these issues, how they're going to be improving to the extent that, that they are not performing at the level that uh, their investors would like them to be in, in certain respects. Well, I look forward to uh, following SASB's uh, progress and continuing to develop and advocate for the standards. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, and thank you for your thought leadership. Thanks, Amelia. It's been my pleasure. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.